typically when we hear the greeting namaste, we think of peaceful spirituality. We hear the sentiment of love and respect. And yet today's guest has written a book entitled Namaste the Hard Way. What is she talking about? We will find out in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Sasha Brown Warsham, and in addition to being the creator of Namaste the Hard Way, a daughter's journey to find her mother on the yoga mat, she is a writer, an editor, and, oddly enough, a yoga teacher. Sasha Brown Warsham, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Sasha, in in the beginning, well, let me start with the title. Namaste the hard way. That's not supposed to be hard, right? Isn't that supposed to be peaceful and light, filled with light and joy? What why why hard? Well, for me, the journey to come back to yoga was a very hard journey. It really had to do with the loss of my mother at a young age. Um, She was a yoga teacher. And so as I was growing up with her, I always thought yoga was sort of this like weird, hippie, spiritual thing that my mother did. And it was separate from my life. Um, And so losing her and and then losing my running, which is really my sort of practice. Uh, It wasn't spiritual, but it was definitely my physical relief. Um, But losing running when I had an injury and coming back to the practice of my mother, it was kind of a hard road. And um, so that's, that's why, that's why we came up with the clever title because we thought that it sort of showed that it was this journey for me to come back to a yoga practice. Well, it really sounds like a journey. Let me ask you this as, as a youngster, as a, as a teenager, and I know you lost your mom when you were a teenager, but even before then, your mom was kind of the odd mom in the neighborhood, was she not? <laughs> she definitely was. She was um, she was definitely a character and stood out in many ways. How so? Well, she I, I think my favorite story of her from that time is that she every time it would rain, she for some reason we we did some kind of outlet shopping trip I think back in. Um, back when I was in middle school and she bought this ridiculously yellow, bright Dick Tracy raincoat that went from her ankles all the way up to her shoulders. And it was just, I mean, it was as banana yellow, like just this bright, crazy yellow. And every time it even sprinkled, my mother would put this on and she was so proud of it. She loved it so much, but it was the most bizarre, crazy thing. And I'd be so embarrassed when she would come and pick me up and she'd have her Birkenstocks on and hanging out of her Birkenstocks and then she'd have this big yellow trench coat on and she would look so different from the you know trim and and kind of perky moms that were at the at the pickup normally and so I always I felt so embarrassed of her and it's so sad because looking back it's like oh I I, she was so interesting and amazing and I wish that I could have known her that way Um, but as a child obviously I, I felt differently. Well, you know, when you say that she had a ridiculously yellow raincoat, I mean, instantly, you know, an image comes to mind, and it does sound kind of hard for a teenager to tolerate her mom in that raincoat. And that was that was just like some a very small portion of of who she was. She was um, very outspoken, and she believed in a lot of political causes that weren't necessarily. Um, popular among the parents that I was growing up. So I was growing up in Southern Ohio 
very different political beliefs than most of the people around us. And so that always made me feel like we stood out as well. Plus, my mother was Catholic and my father was Jewish, but then she kind of turned to this yogic religion. And so I just I felt I felt like I was very different than the other kids and other that works with her yellow Sasha. raincoat among others. <laughs> among others. Sasha, I just want to point out to those who are listening. Um, I am in the United States. You are in where? I am in. I'm right outside of London. And, and the reason that I bring that up is because every now and then something odd happens with your voice, and I just want people to understand what that's about. It's not what they're listening to. It's what's happening as you and I talk. I, yeah, definitely. It's um, it's it's a challenge. The technology here, so <laughs> it's a work in progress. All right. So, mom really does sound like a lot of a character. Not a bit of a character, but a lot of a character. And and I just, you know, I'm imagining even around what would be holiday time. There's Hanukkah. There's Christmas, and then there's your mom. What would she do around the holidays? She did all kinds of um, uh, she did all kinds of meditation circles, and but she, but she also she really loved Christmas. I mean, it's funny she grew up Catholic and kind of left the religion um, pretty quickly when she met my father, which and she was very young when she married my father. She was only twenty, um, but she was committed at the same time to those traditions. I think because she had such happy memories of Christmas with her family, and so we would go and spend Christmas with her family and very traditional, beautiful Christmas. Um, so she definitely did Christmas, but she also got pretty into Hanukkah and she would decorate her house and she would um, love, she loved spinning dreidels. She was actually very, she, she loved celebration. So kind of any opportunity to celebrate, to do fun things from any religion, <laughs> she kind of would take it. And so the holidays were a really joyful time for us. She would, we'd have a Christmas tree, we'd have Hanukkah, we'd have all kinds of decorations for Diwali. She was just all over the place and it was a lot of fun. Well, you know, it sounds like a lot of fun, but it also sounds like it could be fairly confusing. And you describe yourself as um, being the fastest girl in the neighborhood for the first 10 years of your life. So here you are describing yourself as the fastest girl in the neighborhood. And I'm going to ask you what that means in a minute. And then you've got your mom, who's kind of like all over the place, doing for you what at that point seemed like pretty unusual things, although you have certainly come to really appreciate um, sort of the joy and the uniqueness of your mom. Tell us about the first 10 years as the fastest girl in the neighborhood with mom doing all kinds of, at that point, unusual things. It's interesting that you asked that because that is true. It was it was confusing, um, and I remember very distinctly envying our neighbors who um, went to Catholic school, and they were very rooted in kind of their one religion, and they knew both of their parents were that religion, and they knew exactly what they were doing at the holidays. And so I, I think there was, for me, a little bit of a sense of competition and and like I was missing something because I felt different. And so that my running... Um, and being the fastest girl, it was, I didn't. It wasn't in a sexual way. It was in a in a in a speed way. I, I loved to run, and I often beat the other kids at races, and that was a huge point of pride for me growing up. I, I, I'm glad you helped us understand what the fastest girl in the neighborhood meant. 
<laughs> you can take it two ways, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, you, you, you said that your mind was pretty fast. I mean, your, your brain would just race. What was going on? Well, I do think that's true, too. I, I, I felt both, you know, very proud and, and loving my mother and also felt this, you know, this competition with my neighbors. And so I think that there was a lot of, um, there were just a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions growing up that I had roiling around in my head for a long time. I would think so. In, In the third grade, you were sent to a psychotherapist because you orchestrated a walkout Shame on you. That's true. With your fellow students (laughs) over a pizza issue. So we're going to take a break. But when we come back, I want to understand what the walkout over the pizza was about. Folks, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> this is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk. I am having a conversation with Sasha Brown Warsham. Uh, Namaste the Hard Way, a daughter's journey to find her mother on the yoga mat. And just a reminder, if you're hearing little things in the sound, I am in America, Sasha is in London, and we're working to make this work. So you stay right where you are, and we'll be right back. Sasha, tell us about this um, really unusual child who orchestrated a walkout over pizza. Help me understand this one. So I think that one of the most important parts that my, uh, one of the most important things that my parents tried to kind of impart to me growing up was political action. And so they were always taking me to marches. They were always taking me to political rallies. They, you know, I was stuffing envelopes for Planned Parenthood when I was nine. Um, So I was doing all kinds of political things when I was very, very young. And so when there was some, I I don't even actually remember what the exact change was, but there was some kind of change in the school lunch menu that something to do with the pizza. And for whatever reason, I didn't like it. And no one was listening to me because I was so young. And so I organized all of the other children who agreed with me and we we walked out at lunchtime and I was the ringleader of it and took the fall. So ended up, um, I think called my parents in and I got in a lot of trouble and, Um, but it was, I went to a pretty like liberal kind of, you know, hippie school. And so they, they more wanted me, they they were concerned that I had problems and they wanted me to go into therapy at that time. And they weren't, I I wasn't punished. I wasn't suspended or anything like that, but that they thought that I could benefit from some therapy. (laughs) Do, Do you remember what the therapist position was, what he or she recommended to your parents? Um, it was a she, and she, I, she was mostly just um, just talking to me about why, you know, why. I, I think what the biggest concern for her was that I was trying to get all of these other 
kids to agree with me that it wasn't enough that I felt it on my own, that I was trying to like pull everybody into this kind of orbit. And so she was, I, she was more about like, how do you stand on your own with your beliefs and not feel like you have to pull other people into it? And, you know, and that was more where, the direction that she went with it, as I recall, from the therapy, that, which that, was pretty yeah. powerful. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go back to your mom, because clearly um, you have written a book that speaks to the power uh, of your mom in your life. And so I'd like for you to tell us about your journey back to yoga, which you had fled from, and how that impacted you. So I came back to yoga um, so my mother died when I was 16 and I didn't practice for years after that. And I came back to yoga when I was about 23 or 24, um, right after we had moved to Boston, my husband and I, and, um, I had an injury from my running really bad injury. I think it was an Achilles injury. I'm, I'm injured quite frequently from running, but I believe this, this one was an Achilles one. And so it, uh, it kept me off running for a while. And so my physical therapist had recommended that I try yoga. And I didn't know what I thought of that because I hadn't really loved it as a child. Um, but when I went back to the, to the studio that was nearest to my house, the practice had changed so dramatically. Like during the nine years or um, during that time that after my mother died, yoga just kind of exploded in the West. And there were 10 different studios within walking distance to my house. And there were so many different options for yoga. There was power yoga, there was hot yoga. And there were ways that I could incorporate what I loved, this kind of hot, sweaty, fast, heart racing type of exercise with what my mother had done, this spiritual, slow, beautiful practice. And there was a way to combine those two things. And I think that's really what became the hook for me. That's really what drew me to yoga but it wasn't really a spiritual practice when I first started. And it was only once I really conquered kind of the physical aspects that I started to see the bigger picture in terms of what yoga was and then was able to connect to my mother that way because I could see why it meant so much to her. And what was the bigger picture that you learned? Um, well, you know, yoga is, the asana is obviously what we see on Instagram and what we see sort of what we think of when we think of yoga, downward dog, you know, these poses that we do. But obviously it's so much bigger than that. It's, it's the religion for many people. And if there's this path, eight different limbs of yoga, the breathing is very important. Um, you know, the, the philosophy of not harming is very important. And so there are all these different offshoots and these branches that matter just as much as the asana, which is what you see just in the practice. Um, from a physical perspective, but when you put it all together, it sort of becomes a lot. It doesn't sort of, it, it is, it's a lifestyle and it's a way of living, um, that leads you eventually to the ultimate goal of Samadhi or, you know, the, the kind of enlightenment and, and nobody gets there. That's not really the point. It's that you're, you're following the steps and you're following the path to get there. You talk about, uh, and and please correct my pronunciation of the word, uh, samskaras? Mm-hmm, samskaras. All right. Well, I see that I pronounced it correctly. I'm happy about that. <laughs> you you describe <laughs> them as thought patterns and scars that arise from our personal pain. 
and then you give examples yeah. of some of yours. Can you can you share that with us? So actually writing that portion of the book was the hardest portion of the book to write because basically that was the story of when my mother was sick and when she was dying. Um, and I, the whole book is sort of designed around these yogic ideas. Um, and I, but I don't know that I'd actually seen those as samskars until later. So it took me a while to come to that, but certainly the, lead up to my mother's death was, was horrific. She had breast cancer and it was horrible and she it spread and she was um, getting sicker and sicker. And I was trying to be a teenager at the same time. So I was fighting against her like any teenager would do. And um, there's just, it was a very, it was a very ugly time in my life and of course in her life as well. And so those scars, they run very deep and it's still imprinted on my soul so to speak it's very it's um it was very raw it was very hard to write you uh, the one that you identified as the first one is the night that your aunt told you your mother was going to die as distinguished from when your mom actually did die why was that such a powerful moment for you that was actually the first moment that I realized that she was going to die. Um, we were we were really not told, and, and when I say we, I'm, I'm referring to me and my sister. Um, she was seven, so she was far younger than I was. Um, but we were not really told that it was as serious as it was, which in retrospect is absurd in a way because of course it was serious she had metastatic you know breast cancer with a recurrence and so it was very very serious but we weren't really told that we were kind of kept out of the loop and so even though as sick as she was we really believed she was going to get better and that was the very very first time that I realized oh she's this is this is actually going to be my life now (laughs) she's going to die and I have to kind of get used to that idea your mom had cancer. Your grandmother had cancer. Say something yes. about that. Well, my grandmother had postmenopausal breast cancer, which is different than what my mother had, which is premenopausal breast cancer. Um, and so, um, that as far as my risk factor, it's not as bad as I always thought it was. I, I learned this later when I was going to a geneticist to help, um, to help get gene testing and such. And that was, it was comforting in a way to learn that, um, that my risk is a little bit lower than, than I had always anticipated, which was that I would certainly get it because it was in my maternal lineage for so many generations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for my grand, from my grandmother's perspective, which is a totally different piece of this, I think it was very hard for her to have the same disease and then to see her daughter not be able to beat it when she was able to beat it. Um, and I know that was incredibly painful for her. Absolutely. You note that you and your sister weren't particularly told uh, about the seriousness of mom's illness. As a mother yourself today, what are your thoughts when there's something like that happening in the family? Uh, and I assume your response would be age-dependent. Do you tell or do you not tell? I think that my biggest takeaway from what happened to me as a child is really that I'm incredibly forthcoming with my children. I, maybe, maybe to a, you know, maybe to a fault. I think that I probably tell them more than they need to know, but it's because I 
remember so clearly what it felt like to be left out in the dark and to mm-hmm. not really know what was happening. Um, even with parents who were relatively forthcoming, I think they really just thought they were protecting me and trying to be optimistic. And sure. honestly, I think for my, I think my mother didn't even really believe that she was going to die. I really think she, I think she told us what she believed and wanted to believe. I think she very much wanted to think positively and that, you know, she didn't want to face it. There, there did come a time, however, when she said to you, and I'm quoting from Namaste the Hard Way, if I die, I want you to keep living in the moment, not feeling sad all the time. And you say that your mom told you this from the hospital bed as they had moved her to study the cancer that had spread. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, what, what she did that? say that. What was that like for you? Um, it, in the moment, it felt real, like the permission to not be sad for the rest of my life. But now looking back, it's, it's, you know, it's been 25 years now since she died. And when I think of the idea that I would ever not be sad about it, it's absurd. But at the same time, I, she had no experience with it. She'd never lost a parent. You know, none of us had, had seen someone die so young and none of us had had experienced such a huge loss in our family. And I think there really was the idea that we could get over it, that, you know, I'd, I'd cry for three years and then I'd be fine. We didn't really have the deep understanding of grief that I certainly have now, which is that it's, it's lifelong. There are, your mom told you, no guarantees, honey. All we have is now. Today, this moment, this breath. Yes. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue with Sasha Brown Warsham, Namaste the Hard Way, A Daughter's Journey to Find Her Mother on the Yoga Mat. We'll be right back. Sasha, again, I want to go back to an earlier uh, point that you made. For you, your life was about running. For your mom, something Mm -hmm. very different. And you absolutely rejected what mom was doing because that's what kids do. I kind of think it's Mm -hmm. genetically wired. If your mom likes it, you hate it. But as an adult, and again, as a mom yourself now, why is it so important? Why was it so important to write Namaste the hard way? What do you want people to learn from your experience with your mom? Well, I think for me, it was really cathartic in terms of seeing my mother through adult eyes and seeing her as this whole human that I, because I hadn't really examined some of these feelings for 25 years. And so to be able to go back and to see her that way um, was, was a gift to me. And as far as what I think, it, why it's universal and why I think that it would appeal to other people, I think that all of us have this, these others, you know, and that we are, we're very separate from them for whatever reason. And even, even those of us who are very close with our 
family, we, there is a point of pride in the places where you're different from your family and where you're, where you differ from your mother, your father, and you don't do, you don't make the same choices. Like I have a lot of friends who, you know, it's very important for them to be able to say, well, I, I would never do the way, I would never do it the way my mother did it. And, you know, what, whatever it was, what, however it was, they always want to do something different. And so the, I think the universal message here is that if we really look back over our lives, if we really look at our parents and the way that they were so human, we can love them in a different way. And it can make us love all of our relationships that way. Just the, the incredible ways in which we can see people differently when we are a little more generous and a little bit more open to letting their perspective in. You make a very clear statement uh, in Namaste the Hard Way, and it almost sounds like an angry, very firm statement. You say, my kids will never have a Ouija board. Why? <laughs> um, do, now I'm like, do, did I say that? Um, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> We, we just passed a Ouija board. We were just doing Christmas shopping. We just passed a Ouija board. And I thought, oh, look, a Ouija board. Should we get one for the kids? We, we didn't, but I, it's amazing that I said that so emphatically. Um, well, well, let me remind I, you of what else you said. You said you burn sage in the house. You meditate on positive energy. You try to see the divine light and all who cross your path. And you get it now why your mother made you throw out that board. So somewhere I do, I, I do, and I and the funny thing, the funny thing about Ouija boards is that every once in a while I'll have my kind of childhood feeling about it, which is, oh, this is fun, this is just a game. Parker Brothers makes it. Um, but then I come back to the 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 truth of it, which is that um, that it. I mean, to give a child something that is even even at I mean at its even at its base level, at the advertising level, it's designed to conjure spirits and demons that doesn't seem very good right for an eight-year-old to do so um i guess that's that's where i that's where i would draw the line and and perhaps not want one in my house especially because i'm currently living in a house that some people say is haunted anyway i don't need a Ouija board here (laughs) no you definitely don't (laughs) and do your children know that they're living in a house that some people say is haunted no, actually, we we just learned this the other day um, from our neighbors, and we didn't even know the story. And no, I'm I'm refraining from telling them because I want to sleep at night. So they don't know. <laughs> that that makes sense. What what's the the takeaway um, that you would like folks to experience as they read Namaste the hard way? Uh, I think it's actually it's a, an appreciation for our our parents. I mean, particularly, of course, for for daughters to appreciate their mothers and to look at their mothers maybe differently, maybe with a little bit more love and forgiveness. Um, but I think it's universal. I think it can also be for fathers and daughters. I have to say, when I was writing the book, for me, I saw my father in a whole new way. And I know I was the writer and not the reader, but I think that there is, um, there is a gift in, in terms of being able to look back on your past in a more forgiving way with more objective eyes instead of the, the lived past where we're so subjective and we're so immersed in everything and we sort of move on and we don't look over that in kind of a global sense. And so that's what I would hope people can get from it is, is just stronger relationships with their family and loved ones. 
Sasha, how can people learn more about what you are doing and about Namaste the Hard Way? Well, I have a, um, a website, sashabrownwarsham.net. And then I also have a Twitter page, Sasha Brown Warsh at Twitter. And I have an Instagram page, Sasha Brown Warsham, and a Facebook page as well. So I'm all over social media and and the internet. (laughs) Sounds great. And the spelling of Warsham is W-O-R-S-H-A-M, Sasha Brown Warsham. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Remember that you can always listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to Mind Talk, M Y N D T A L K. .org. There are also several other platforms uh, that you can listen to Mind Talk from, so go to your favorite one and see if Mind Talk is there. I want to remind you that you can always be in touch with, to Mind Talk with. Want to remind you that you can always be in touch by sending an email to Pamela P A M E L A at mindtalk.org. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.